At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. Welcome to September. This is my favorite month of the year. So as you're listening to this, I hope I'm chasing bugles or I'm elbow deep and breaking a bull down. Um, you have a lot of options when you listen to podcasts. So thank you for choosing this one. This podcast is all about the elk hunting learning curve, personal development, creating discipline, and having your best life, and doing it through hard work, delayed gratification, being accountable to yourself. So today we're bringing on Cody Rich, one of the original gangsters when it comes to podcasting, especially in the hunting industry. Today we're talking about the business of podcasting, and we're going to learn more about his business, his best practices, his mistakes, things he's overcome. We're talking about his other company, Backcountry Fuelbox, but really this is not like a podcast where we just advertise. We're actually going to talk about becoming an entrepreneur, the good, the bad, the ugly, and, and maybe inspire some people listening to pursue their side hustle or to just do something to create some additional revenue and hopefully it aligns with your passions. This podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics. Save 20% on their apparel by using the discount code ELKSHAPE. They have some pretty hip stuff. The shorts, the tees, some of their, their lighter weight hoodies, the sun flares. Check those out. Kittatrek boots out of Montana. Uh, actually, their boots are made in Italy. That's what I'm wearing right now as I'm hunting while you're listening to this podcast using the mountain guides. I like a higher top, a little bit stiffer boot. I don't mind the extra weight. Very waterproof, very durable, especially for those rocky terrain. That's what I rock. Um, I've already downloaded all my base map, offline maps, and those are cool because I live on my phone while elk hunting. I literally am tracking my steps every day, so I'm running tracking. I'm checking waypoints. I have all the stuff from my e-scouting plus the stuff I'm discovering while in the field, and I can toggle between Google Images, which is great. Uh, I can toggle between USGS, Topo Maps, uh, all the above. So thank you, Basemap, for all your support. This year, I'm rocking Kafaru. A lot of people ask me, why did I switch from EXO? And to, to sum it up, I just have more options with Kafaru from all their packs and their different style of frames, the duplex, the eighth of an inch, the 16th, uh, the cutthroat, shape charge, the striker, the hoodlum. I have all those packs and I'm kind of interchanging them based on my hunting needs right now. I think I'm probably using the hoodlum because I'm doing more of a backpack style hunt in Wyoming. And Phelps Game Calls, thanks for all your support and all the elk-shaped camps. Thank you, Baku e-bikes. They gave away an e-bike to one of our elk-shaped camp attendees last year. They'll probably do the same thing in 2021. In fact, we're going to do an elk-shaped camp in Salt Lake City at their archery range that they bought. So I'm excited for that. Wilderness Athlete, use the discount code elkshape 30 save 30% on your first purchase. We're probably going to do 
a Nook Shape Camp in Arizona 2021, and we're hoping to do that um, right by WAHQ. A Sika Gear gave away Coralite weight hoodies at every camp, actually three per camp. So thank you guys for your support of the camps. I do like Sika. Uh, I, I would say I'm not officially sponsored, but I'm definitely somebody who appreciates their gear uh, and clothing is gear. So if you get a chance, check out Sika gear. That's what I'm rocking. Climate Sleep Systems, discount code ElkShape20, save 20%. Hamski, thanks for providing all the arrow rests that we gave away at all the ElkShape camps. Same with Tight Spot for all the quivers and Black Gold for all the sites. Uh, Black Gold makes one of the most bulletproof lifetime warranty easy third access sites out on the market check them out lakewood products thanks for the the free double bow case that we got to give away to one of the lucky elk shape campers and thank you matthews archery one of my favorite partnerships ever uh, i just love the company i love the brand i love what they stand for i shoot the bows well and i just think they're they've just been a huge supporter so thank you stowaway gourmet thank you guys that's the best tasting backcountry food hashtag not sponsored but just thank you for making the best tasting backcountry food uh, as far as free dried goes there's nothing else out there even close and black ovis for all your last minute hunting gear use the discount code elk shape save 20 20%. Check out our AAE Max Stealth Elk Shape Logo Edition veins in the Elk Shape store. Check out our YouTube channel. Check out our Instagram, our website, our blog. Let's get in the show with Mr. Cody Rich, one of my favorite personalities, phenomenal podcaster, true, intelligent entrepreneur, hardworking, hell of an elk hunter, my kind of people. Let's go. All right, guys, welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man, sitting down with one of the OGs to podcasting, Cody Rich. What's up, buddy? What's going on, man? Uh, I don't know. Excited. So almost elk season. I'm getting pumped for that. Um, I've just been in grind mode, man. So August is like, August is like, the it's the calm before the storm, but to me, it is the storm before the calm, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you need to do a couple months of work in one month. For sure. Like, I've always had this mentality that like... I work 11 months to take one off, uh, and usually August is that makeup, you know what I mean? It's like that month where you got to work all for August and September to make it up, but um, I don't know. That's uh, kind of the best part about being an entrepreneur is you get to just leave and go hunt whenever you want, as much as you want, in theory, right? It's theoretical, but I would say for a while there, I finally like, I didn't figure this out, but you also have to do some of the work in October. Like say you go hunting all of September, you can't just come back to a shit show uh, or you will. So you kind of have to like pad and slowly kind of take back off. You can't just dive right in after elk hunting and being unplugged. Dude, totally. And it's like every year I am so bad at getting too many tags. Uh, and every year, like by the time, you know, halfway through September, like the fires are building and they're, you know, just stoking themselves to the point where I'm like, ah, I got to get some stuff done. Or like, you know, sometimes it's like, dude, I'll get off the mountain and just be working from my laptop off like my center console in a random spot with service and like trying to put out as many fires as I can. So I can go hunting the next day. And I, you know, that's just what it is. And like, I know that lifestyle is not for everyone and there's not a lot of like security within that lifestyle, but I, it's like all I've known for the last probably 10 years. So, uh, I love it. And it's like, I almost get excited about it now. Like I I'm stoked to just work my face off for the next month and then go hunting and, and try to manage just like keeping things afloat while you're gone and it's chaos, but I love it. Yeah. Well, there's a lot you said there. I want to kind of unpack like I want to get to know what you were doing 10 years ago before you took a leap of faith and, and kind of, I guess I should probably introduce 
for those that have never heard of Cody Rich, I don't know what you've been doing, but Cody's like one of the first guys to to put out like a really solid podcast, one of the absolute first. And then I know that you've done something with ammunition, maybe Powder River. You've got the Backcountry Fuel Box. You have a free podcast. You have a uh, a Patreon account. Your hands are in a lot of different places. And, oh, you're really good at elk hunting. You're really good at mule deer hunting. And you live in Montana. You're married. You got the kids deal. I mean, you're you a busy guy. Uh, but maybe take a, take a step back. Like, when did Cody Rich decide to become an entrepreneur? Dude, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny because I get like this thing thrown at me, like I'm the, the serial entrepreneur. I get a lot of buddies that call me and like ask me about business ideas, and I you know help tons of friends with their business ideas or how I would go about it, which is comical to me because I still feel like I don't know anything about this, but I'm making it up as I go. And to some extent, it's kind of like elk hunting. I would say when I started a podcast five years ago, I didn't feel like I knew anything about elk hunting, um, even though I've been doing it for 20 years. And then you realize that like everyone's on this journey and we're all at different points. And I may be like, I, I have experience. I have a lot of what not to do as much as I know what to do. And so I don't want to come off as an expert in elk hunting. I don't want to come off as an expert in entrepreneurship because I still do not know. And it's a learning process. And so if you like circle back when I became an entrepreneur, I have no idea. Uh, but like I grew up on a farm and for the most part, like all through high school, I, I, I will remember like the first time someone told me I was going to be an entrepreneur is, uh, I used to race a lot of motocross and I really wanted this pressure washer and I kind of worked on the farm and made my own money most of my life, but I really wanted this pressure washer and it was really expensive. So I ended up buying like four pressure washers from this dude, uh, and got a hell of a deal on four of them and then sold them three of them to basically get mine for free. And I was paying this dude and like, it was like this small town gas station. I don't know where he got these pressure washers, probably from Alibaba before Alibaba was a thing. And, uh, he's like, man, you're going to be a great entrepreneur someday. He's like, I just got swindled by a 15 year old. And I was like, huh? Like, I just thought that's how it was done, you know? Um, and so that was probably like the first time when it was like, oh, maybe the light switched on. Like I can make money. Um, I can do my own thing, all these things. And, for early age, I knew like I was kind of supposed to take over the family farm, but I knew that is not what I wanted to do. Like it just wasn't in me. I love farming. Like there's something about windrows that I still love to this day. But at the end of the day, like I knew all the farmers I knew didn't elk hunt or they didn't archery elk hunt for sure. And for me, like I was obsessed with Wayne Carlton. I was obsessed with elk hunting. I was like, hmm, farming doesn't really equal great elk hunting. So I'm not going to do that. And like, I never really knew, actually, I ended up trying to go be a firefighter because I thought that had the best schedule to go hunting all the time. Uh, you know, that worked out, didn't work out, whatever, um, took me down a path and I ended up working for a great entrepreneur. And that's kind of like one of my first mentors down that world. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it began. And then honestly, I was like diving deep into that world and podcast. And this was probably like 2006, 2007, eight, somewhere in there and podcasts were getting popular and I started listening to all these entrepreneur podcasts and all these dudes were talking about building online companies and like living on the beach, drinking Mai Tais in Maui or in Bali or whatever. And I was <laughs> just like the whole time I'm like, that's awesome. You can do whatever you can build this company and have enough time to go hunting. First thought, dude, was first thought was like I could go hunting all the time and own this internet company. I got to figure out what this internet thing is because like, dude, I'm a small town farm kid. I didn't know anything. So I'm like, 
trying to figure out internet companies and all this stuff. And I had, so the, the entrepreneurs working for, we had kind of had this ammunition thing on the side. Uh, and I was like, that's perfect. We'll sell ammunition on the internet, you know? And, uh, it took me like a number of years to take that, even put it online and like, you know, all these Tim Ferriss had this book called four hour work week. And I was like obsessed with that at the time. And you know, all these things, like that was kind of like my intro and no one was doing this. And like when it comes to hunting, but I was just like, I could build an internet company that makes money without time, which is a comical joke now and go hunting as much as I want. And so that's like where everything has stemmed from that. And like a lot of the decisions, and I'll tell people this today when I'm helping people with their companies or startup ideas or whatever, I'm like, do everything based on having time, not money. So many kids or so many people are like, Oh, I could make a hundred thousand dollars a year doing this. And I'm like, that's cool. But where you, when you have money, all you want is time. And so every decision I've ever made when it comes to business and ideas and things are like, they have to be scalable and scalable equals time. Cause that's the only way to buy back your time is to create systems and create these processes that give you time to hunt. Again, I'm not an expert. Like I, I, you're talking about I'm working my face off in August just so I can have one month off. You know, there's dudes that, you know, they have six months off or they work a couple hours a week or whatever and they can do whatever they want. So I'm not saying I'm good at it, but, you know, that's what I've tried to work towards. Yeah. That was a very long-winded answer to a short question. but Yeah, but it's like that's the stuff I wanted to know. It's weird because I think – we're similar in in a couple ways, but we're definitely different in that. I think you're, I think you're smart, way smarter than me, dude. You're, I think you have some serious business acumen when it comes to. I've just talking to our mutual friend John. He runs a lot of his ideas by you, and I'm just like, dang. And to the point where now I'm like, hey, John, run this idea by Cody. <laughs> but uh, we both like elk hunting so much that we wanted to figure out a way to do it as much as possible. And so I've quit jobs. Like I, I'm, I'm a fitness guy. So I was in the gym industry, but there's, those jobs are so easy to get at the time. So I could literally be a manager and say, I'm taking the month off. If anyone raised an eyebrow, I'd be like, cool, I'm out. Come back in October and they'd hire me back or some the, the the competitor down the street would hire me. Or I was a personal trainer and just could tell my clients, Hey, uh, you're on your own for the month. Don't get fat. And, uh, we'll be back in October. But ultimately I've always, once I got hooked into elk hunting, like literally addicted, literally takes over my life. I just wanted time. I didn't care about money. Whereas in my early twenties, I was close to making six figures as like a little 20 year old personal trainer punk. And I made more money then than I do now. And I don't even care about money. I care about time and I care about control of my schedule, which is so bizarre because I think there's a lot of young guys that listen and that are really stoked on making, quote, six figures or whatever that number is. And there's a price tag. One other thing is like you could go be a ski bum, right? Like I grew up there. We had ski bums that would just live on the mountain. And that wasn't exactly what I wanted to be like. I, I wasn't, I've always been really good at being like, what does my future self want? Or what am I, what's my future self? Where's my future self going to find happiness? And I've always known that like, I'd watch when it goes back to racing, right? Like I would watch dudes that I raced with that kind of washed up or didn't make it pro. And like, 
I wasn't stoked about that lifestyle, right? Like I didn't want to be just like a washed up pro rider that never really made it. And I'm like, so when it comes to racing and this could be true for skiing, this could be true for a lot of hobby industries where if you are just slightly short, like 0.1% of the, of that industry makes it the big time. Right. And like, whether that's skiing, whether that's racing, whether it's all these things and the, the other 99.9% are like, where do they go? What do they do? And there's people that are successful and I, I don't want to like shit on that entire thing, but to some extent I always looked at it as like, man, if you don't make it there, like what's your plan? So I always like looked at a lot of things like, yeah, I could go be a hunting bum and do nothing, uh, and just hunt and then, you know, pick up jobs here and there. But I knew that like, wasn't going to fulfill my lifestyle when I wanted a family and wanted the nice things or like, even if it, it meant like buying nice tags, like I knew, um, Dan Evans was like a huge inspiration for me when I was you know younger, he was, you know, buying these tags and he was going to Nevada all the time. I was like, man, I want to be that guy. Like, it's cool that you get to go hunting on OTC, but like, how cool would it be if you could go hunt Nevada every year? Like what if 20 grand was a drop in the bucket? Like I've never like aspired to be super rich. I don't have any aspirations to have nice things like nice trucks and you know, all those things. But like at the end of the day, like I knew that to some extent money does drive things and money does drive happiness. I'm not saying completely, you know, there's a lot of statistics that'll show making over $75,000 a year equals no more happiness. Like I, I get all that and I'm not like trying to push happiness, but there's a balance. Right. And so like, for me, it was always about like, where's the balance of like, okay, I'll feel successful, you know, making a, a little bit of money, but at the end of the day, time is more important than money. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to kind of dig in on behind the scenes of Cody Rich's crazy life, because I think some people might from the outside looking in be like, oh man, Cody Rich has got it made. And I think I know better. I think you probably hustle as hard as anyone I've ever met. So when you first launched your podcast, and I believe Dan Evans was one of your first guests because that's the first one I ever listened to. Dan's a friend of mine. And congratulations, by the way, getting him on a podcast. Like I literally still to this day text him once a quarter and be like, are you ready to podcast? Yeah, I'm going to have to just drive over to his house. But anyways, like from the first time you did your podcast till now where you're on episode four or 500, like, did you know you were going to try to monetize podcasting or did it start out with kind of like, Oh, this would be cool. Yeah. Um, all of the above. So I, you know, I had, a, I started an ammo company. I didn't know anything and I wanted to have a company, right? Well, as you, this will happen with a lot of ideas and this will happen with a lot of things that you, pursue in life you'll you'll get to a point where like oh this was the this was the hard part or this was the the problem that i didn't see and with ammunition like i could see the writing on the wall that like hey building an online ammunition company is great until regulation shuts that entire thing down and it's worthless uh and so i'm like man there's a lot of risk and not a lot of reward there's not a lot of money in it so i'm like okay what's what's the next idea and you know there was courses popping up and all these things i'm like yeah you know like every entrepreneur has their own goals or their own things. And like, yeah, some people do businesses there that are like small industry, right? Like I have a buddy who built, um, a company entirely around like pest control and that's pretty genius and, and doing things like that. Um, but I was like, I don't know, what's the next idea? What's the next idea? And I was listening to a ton of podcasts. And at the time I was like, well, podcast is a, 
a, a great way to network and meet new people. I knew I wanted to be like in the hunting space. I was tired of the shooting industry, didn't like it. And I was like, well, this would be a great way to kind of network and figure out what the next thing is. Uh, and also, man, there's nobody out there talking in depth about hunting. Like I had got to a certain point when hunting where it was like, okay, these magazines or even these books are good, but like I want to deep dive into conversations with people who know more than I am or more, more than I do and kind of go. And so like it was, it was definitely, uh, it multi, a multifaceted endeavor, if you will. And that, yeah, it was a networking thing. Yeah. It was like, I did want to more, know more information, but I, I don't know that I ever thought like, okay, this is going to be financially stable in any capacity. But what I found is that I think I got to about a hundred and I don't know, a hundred episodes. Let's just say a hundred. And I could see the writing on the wall that the scalability was there. I'm like, okay, if I want to make more money making ammunition, I just have to work more hours. I had hired people and gone that route and that was tough and it had its own headaches. And then, you know, found out that like that sweet balance was like one or two employees, but you know, more. And then, but at the end of the day with the podcast is like, okay, this thing is scalable. If there's a million people listening, it's the same amount of work as if 10 people are listening. I'm like, that's interesting. And so I kind of transitioned to pushing it harder and pushing it harder and going down that road still like, okay, I don't know what the next thing is. But that was always the case. It was always going to be like, okay, this will help me build the next company. And then eventually, and actually there was a couple of companies along the way. Like there's a boulevard of broken dreams, dude, that are like <laughs> my URLs that I bought thinking I had a gold mine and then like never did anything with them. Uh, but eventually, you know, the backcountry fuel idea came up. And it's funny because I actually gave backcountry fuel to a couple different people or like told other people to do it. And they were like, ah, I don't know, you know, him and Han. I was like, this is a good idea. You should do it. And it kind of dawned on me like, oh, I should do this. And so that was kind of the transition. And it's like, I, at the end of the day, and I think you and I have had this conversation, like I totally respect content creators. It's not my personality. And I think it's really important for people to dive into not what's working for other people, but what's going to work for you. Mm. And for me, I'm not a content creator. I'm not good at filming myself. I'm not good at creating videos. I'm not good at that stuff. And so like, I don't want to be a content creator. I like doing podcasts because I like learning from people and I like asking questions. But at the end of the day, like, I don't want to I don't want to be a filmmaker and do all these things. And so I'd rather be an entrepreneur. And so for me, it was like a lot of people have said, Oh, you need to start a YouTube channel. You need to do all this. And like, I'm like, at the end of the day, I it's not what I want to do. It's not who I want to be. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, man, there's some days where I'm like, I'm screwing up because some of these, you know, media companies, if you will, are making a ton of money doing, you know, YouTube channels, doing, you know, the swag stuff, doing more content, more content, more content. Um, which is ironic because now I've kind of considered myself the content creator back under fuel, but you know, it's like all about what you want to do as an entrepreneur and not just looking at ideas as this could make money or this could not make money. Yeah. I like that. You kind of recognize what, what you want to see yourself doing and then you execute and then finding good people along the way. So let's, let's go to getting help. But before that, how did you help yourself? Like, are you a guy who's very savvy and just taught yourself code? Tell us about the rough times of editing your first couple podcasts, uh, making your first website or, or trying to just figure out Adobe suite, you know, all that kind of stuff. The stuff that people don't talk about, like some of that hard shit that's just, you can almost hit your head against a keyboard some days. 
Dude, you know, you go back and we kind of, you touched on this a little bit, but the early days, like when I've launched my podcast, when I've launched, even when I launched my company, like the first company, Powder River, I had kind of done it as a side gig and I was, I had a really good job and I was kind of building it on the side. But when I was like, okay, I'm going all in, I, I really, I basically bought that company from the old owner in 2012. And I was like, I, I was in startup culture. So like startup culture is like, you work your face off, like startup mode to me is working 15 hours, 18 hours a day, mm -hmm. you know, 60 hour, hundred hour work weeks, like nonstop until you get something launched. And like, that was like, I, I felt calm, like that's, where I wanted to be. And so when I launched that first company, that's how it was. Um, it probably cost me in my first relationship, but, uh, uh, you know, I worked my face off that first year and then slowly kind of came off of that and was hunting a lot more. And like, I got it to where, you know, I thought I could go hunting all the time. And, um, and then when I launched the podcast, it was very similar. And I would, I, I tend to go into grind mode and to answer your question, like I usually do it. I mean, I, I've, been bootstrapped, which means like I've done it all self-funded, all my companies. And when you go bootstrapped, like you've got to be doing things. And our mutual friend Gabriel would probably laugh at a lot of the websites I built because like I, I get that they're not pretty. They get that they're like probably <laughs> not even the most functional. But at the end of the day, like I can get stuff off the ground and then bring in someone like Gabriel to like fix, fix my mistakes along the way. And I think it's really important. Like I, I just, I didn't have the money to have, to have a, even a website built in the beginning. You know, I had to do it myself. That's all. I, and so like, I would just learn and learn and learn and try to like do it. And same with the podcast it was like, well, if anyone has ever done this, then I can do it. It's not that hard. Um, and I think having that mentality of like, okay, I'm going to figure it out. Uh, I, I don't know. I come from the generation of entrepreneurs who are very big into bootstraps. And like, I feel like we're in today's era where it's like funded, funded, funded. Uh, maybe we're going back to bootstrapped, but at the end of the day, like there's a lot of people that'll get funding and then just, you know, spend tens of thousands of dollars on every little thing. And that was just not my style, man. It was like, I want to be bootstrapped. I took pride in working, you know, until midnight and then, sleeping for a few hours, getting up at 5am and back at it and like being on a laptop 24 seven, uh, when it was grind time, when it was grind time. And like, that's just how it's been. And now you, you so you, you like start in grind mode and it's like, you do everything and you get everything off the ground. And then once you get a little stability, then I really focus on creating the systems, outsourcing things, like getting things to where it's like effective or whatnot. And then we can dive into that if you want. I do. I mean, I think that's where I want to go because finding really good help, but not too good a help. So I've had a, as a gym owner back in the day, I think there's six different CrossFit gyms. I don't know if they're still open or not, but that were started by people who basically learned from me. I hired them because they were awesome. And then they kind of figured out, Hey, Dan's not that smart. This isn't really that hard to do. I'm going to do my own. And it's kind of sucked. Like uh, at first, I was stoked for the very first one, but like by the sixth one, it was actually kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm like, I'm tired of mentoring people, and then they can just go open their own gym down the road from me and compete, take some of the clients. I'm out, and I just sold the gym. That's the main reason I sold the gym. Uh, so is that kind of like the the crux of? You always find the crux of every industry, right? And so like the gym industry, like it's easy to start. Like there's a lot of people that can get into it. Low barrier entry. Like, is that kind of the thing? It's like, well, any trainer can go open his own gym if he has money. I think, yeah, it, it doesn't take that much money, especially if you have clients, 
you know, you have a turnkey operation, you're like you're going to open your door with 20 clients, dude, you can cover your first lease. Uh, you can, hopefully you saved up some money and you don't have to take a salary for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or a year, but no, the barrier to entry is super low. The, I don't think there's a ton of risk. Yeah. I think people should totally go for it. Uh, I don't want to come across as a hater, but it was frustrating to me because I, I wanted to have a great team and it's probably just a reflection of my leadership. Like I probably didn't, I wasn't smart enough to be like, Hey, you're a really awesome trainer. Why don't I be, invest in you? And we open another gym in, in your name and I'll be a silent, uh, a silent partner. If I was smart enough, this is hindsight talking. I would have done that with six of those trainers. And then I would, you know, be a silent partner in six other gyms and just collect my check and make sure they, you know, help them get their systems dialed. But I, I'm not that smart, but, uh, one of the things that I look at when I look at companies or ideas or anything, and this is stolen from Warren Buffett, it's not mine, but it's like, what is your moat? Like, what is the thing that's defensible around that structure? Um, and a lot of moats, so moats can be an app system, right? Like mm -hmm. they can be a process. -y. Most of the time they are some kind of process or some kind of like, what's your differentiating factor? And so if a company doesn't have the ability to have a moat, uh, it can be very tough because there's low better barrier to entry. And I'll say the same thing, like the subscription box industry, for example. Yeah. Uh, very, very low entry. And there's a lot of hiccups that I realized after the fact. But when you at, at the start, like, oh, cool, I can make money on the first month. And we've been profitable since the first month. But that also means that every other Tom, Dick, and Harry could be profitable from the first month. And so what, <laughs> what a low barrier of entry does, it brings in – low entry entrepreneurs as me putting it very politely that's very polite uh, <laughs> uh and what it does is and and this has created this problem for us because in let's say in the subscription box world I'll give you like a behind the scenes your your money or the difference is made up basically on the buy not on the sell everything's right. the same and so you have to go to the buy well the problem that we run into now is that and we've kind of overcome this after years but in the first year for sure like i i would never i still have never taken a dollar out but at the first year you'd be lucky if you broke even because what happens is every company that you go to deal with has now dealt with those low barrier to entry uh, entrepreneurs who have crossed them in some way or treated them wrong or whatever. And so like that, that makes it very difficult. And I feel like gym owners are kind of the same gym can be the same way. Whereas like, it's kind of, it's, it gets very competitive and petty for some for some people because it's like, okay, anybody can start a gym. What is what gets defensible? And so then like you're talking about clients, you're talking about all these things. And so like one of the things that people don't think about when they're like, I have this great idea to make money. Like are these little things like, you know, how defensible is this idea? Could someone come and copy you? Like what what keeps someone else from copying you? Uh, or how can you do it better? Like what is your system in the back scene that keeps that secure, if you will. God, that's great information for those thinking about going down this road. And I still encourage everyone to work for themselves if they if they if they want to. And there's also nothing wrong with being blue collar and punching a clock and getting two weeks of vacation and having some sort of sustainability. That's great, dude. But like for the record, I got, like I got. I'm gonna pick on one of my buddies, my really good friend Stuart. Uh, he worked for a big company in construction for a long time, and was and a lot of our group of friends is kind of they're all entrepreneurs, right? And Stuart was the only one that wasn't. And for a long time, he would always be like. 
man, I just want to, I think I can go on my own. I think I can do it. I was like, man, you have a lust job. You're making $120,000 a year. You got a pickup and like three weeks, weeks vacation. Like you have no idea what you have right now. And this goes on for like a year, maybe two years. And, and finally he's like, at that point I can tell. And I'm like, you know what? Just do it, dude. Go on your own. Like, cause you're always going to wonder what if. Yes. And so there's something to be said. Like I, I really do think being a number two at a company is so underrated. Like you guys have no idea the stress that's on a number one, but the number two has like a 10th of the stress and all of the perks of a growing company. And so like, I really do think being a, a great number two, uh, is, is invaluable. But having said that, the biggest thing that's going to weigh on you when you're on your deathbed is the what ifs. And so if you feel like, man, I could have done this or I could have done that, go do it, fail. Uh, the younger you are, the more you can fail. And honestly, like I, I really do believe, I believe both. I believe being a number two at a great company is very, very powerful and amazing. And I also believe that taking risks and doing things sheer surely based on the fact that you don't want to be on your deathbed wondering what if you would have taken that leap is very powerful as well. So I, I mean, I don't know if that helps anybody. It probably leaves people more confused than, than, than they have answers, but that's my two cents on like whether to go for it or not. Yeah, you have to weigh it. And uh, one of the mistakes I made early on, and I don't know if you've made this mistake, but uh, for the first six to seven years of owning my gym, it was really Dan Staten's gym. And I was working in the business, not on the business. And to fast forward to the sell of the gym, somewhere in those last three years, I figured it out that I need to not coach that many classes. I need to not train that many athletes. I need to coach coaches. I need to be their leader. I need to make this a gym and have nothing to do with my name. And by the end of it, I was working two or three days a week actually at the gym and working from home the rest of the time. That's when I started Elk Shape and got that going off the ground and was able to kind of build systems. And I don't know if you've made that mistake, but now I've probably made the same mistake with Elk Shape. Elk Shape is very much me and I'm okay with that. Um, whereas the Elk Collective, I definitely wanted to create another business that wasn't just about me at all. And that's where I did that in the, in the hunting space. But where did you come along and be like, okay, the name, my name is on this podcast, but I cannot sit here and record every episode, be the host, edit, do all the show notes, promote it. Oh, plus do backcountry fuel box. Oh, plus all your other stuff and be an awesome husband, dad. Like when did you start getting help and, and how have you taken some, some of the load off your shoulders? So I think the best way to think about that, um, and I always say when people come to me like, Hey, I got this idea. I'm like, cool. What's your exit? And looking <laughs> at the exit first is the most important thing because if, if you don't have an exit, how do you have a trajectory? And if you don't have a trajectory, you have no goals, no plans, no anything. And so when I created Backcountry fuel, <clears throat> I knew going back to like the name, right? Um, you can't, if you want to exit something, it can't be in your name because the podcast, for example, it makes good revenue. But at the end of the day, if I ever wanted to stop podcasting and retire, guess what? The revenue stops because it's like, it's me, right? It's pretty hard to pass that on, which is fine. That was never the case. Like I didn't build that to sell where backcountry fuel, and I don't have any intention of selling it right away. Uh, we actually had an offer last year and I'm like, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm having fun with this. Um, but at the end of the day, like I have built that 100% with my name out of it. 
there's pros and cons and there's a lot of entrepreneurs that do really great, great on the personal brand side. Uh, I do think there's huge power in having a personal brand and it makes quick growth, but it makes a slow exit and it devalues things. And I think at the end of the day, I think a lot of the bigger companies are recognizing this, that like brands built on personal leverage don't have the same effect once they leave. And so with Backcountry Fuel, it's like, it's been, dude, it's been such a slow road of growth. And I think a lot of that is because like I, we stay so broad and it's really hard to grow a company that's that broad. So it's, it's really easy to want to be like, oh yeah, hey, I'm Cody Rich. You can trust me by this thing versus here's this thing you should just trust without any personal recommendation. Uh, there's ways around that and like we could get into that whole thing, but like, you have to know the exit. And so I always knew like, Hey, backcountry fuel is not something I'm going to hand off to my kids and like this great empire or whatever. Like it's probably something I'm going to build and most likely sell and or do something different. Um, I kind of have some ideas of like how that would get leveraged down the road. Um, but we'll just <laughs> leave it at that for now. Um, and so like, I've always wanted to build it without my name in it. And you know, a lot of that is from building other companies that were basically leveraged on my name and realizing like, okay, there's not much that this is worth outside of me doing the work. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, you face such tough decisions every day. Like every day there's some tough decisions and you don't know at the time that you're making a decision that's going to affect the rest of your year. One of the decisions you made and I don't know how long ago was you decided to take your audience to have the option to do Patreon, which um, that's not in my model, but I have mad respect for it because I think you have, gosh, uh, Muley Monday, Tag Tuesday, Wapiti Wednesday, who knows however many, like that's a lot of content and exclusive content doesn't, to me, I don't flinch at it. I think if there's value, people will pay for it. So how hard was that decision? How did you come to that decision? Give us the background on what that decision looks like. You know, the decision was fairly easy. The repercussion and the guilt afterwards became a little bit difficult. And here's what I mean by that. So at the time, um, I was doing – we had a Thursday podcast. And I remember thinking this is pre – pre Wapti Wednesday, Muley Monday. And we had this podcast and then I was like, man, you could do a show just about elk every single week and people would eat that up. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, cool. But if you're going to do that, you might as well do one about mule deer. Cause you don't want to just be the elk guy. And so let's do that too. Uh, and I was like, this is at the time when, you know, more podcasts were better. Like it was about getting out there, uh, running faster than the other guy. So this is early podcast days, 16, 2016 ish. And so, during the peak months, I think it was, we were running like May to October. It was like six months, whatever it was. Uh, I was doing three podcasts a week. Oh my was gosh. Like, yeah. And I mean, you know how much that is. And so you're just like, go, 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 go. And it was like this race, um, to kind of keep on pace with other podcasts and that, and like iTunes was pushing that. Like if you did three podcasts a week, it was popular, you know, that's back when reviews mattered and like all these things. And, and so we started doing that. And then Backcountry Fuel comes along and then, you know, I'm having a kid and we adopted and like all these things. And it was like, okay, time out. Like the other two podcasts got to go. And I mean, you know how hard it is. Like the ad model has its pros and cons. I will say interruption marketing, like this is a grand scale theory on, on marketing, if you will, but like interruption marketing and podcasts are at a crux where 
podcasts were early enough, ads were working well, uh, but as more podcasts, now we're like the scalability of podcasts and this like entry level entrepreneur. So now how many hunting podcasts are out there? Uh, first, how many advertisers? Like, so what happened was I think we hit basically where it was like, it was more work for me to go get these podcasts because at three podcasts a week and two ads per podcast, it was creating an enormous amount of work for me. Now I could have went and got, you know, staples or like whatever, and just random life insurance freaking ads. (laughs) But like, at what point do you give up your moral compass and be like, that's not what I want to do you know, what's, what's the alternative? What's another route? And I remember seeing Patreon early and it was a lot of like low end creators, YouTube creators mainly didn't think much of about it. And so as we get to this point, I know this is like into 17 or whatever. And my producer, good friend, John, he was like, I was like, Hey dude, we gotta cut, <laughs> we gotta cut this. Cause like I got too much going on and I get a kid on the way. So yeah, this would have been 17 uh, early 18, I guess. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have a kid next year. Like I got to reduce the workload. Like the number of hours has got to get reduced. And so at the end of the day, I was like, okay, let's cut Muley Monday, Wapiti Wednesday. Like it sucks. They're really popular shows, but it's not worth my time. And if I can't afford to pay another employee to do something to take that amount of work off my plate, it's really not worth it. And so I was going to cut it. And John was actually like, Hey, what do you think about Patreon? I was like, ah, man, I thought it was kind of a joke. Uh, but he's like, dude, there's, there's creators that are doing really well with it. Like, I think it's worth a shot. I was like, okay, fine. Let's, let's just throw it on. Let's do throw it on Patreon. If it doesn't work, we'll still cut it. I don't like, it's fine. It's a split test. And so when it comes to decisions, a lot of times I'll tell my employees, like they'll, they'll ask me, Hey, do you think this or this? I'm like, cool, split test it. I don't care. Like my answer usually isn't the answer split test it. Like I assume nothing, test everything. And that's what Patreon was in the beginning. It was like, okay, we're going to get rid of it anyway. Let's throw it up and test it. So I throw it up and test it. And that's why I say the decision was easy. The repercussions were a little bit harder because I always want to do right by people. Like I 100% don't want anyone to think I'm scamming them. Like I hate that. Right. Um, and I don't want to be that entrepreneur that like feels like they're scamming anyone. And so when people really came back, we're like, you know, F you podcasts are free. they will always be free. Like it was like, okay. <laughs> you know, like I felt bad about that, dude. Like it was like that weighs on your conscience as much as you like try not to care what anyone thinks. Like, yeah, the internet mobs, the internet mob. But like at the end of the day, like it's still, it still makes you feel like a POS sometimes. And for me, it was like, man, that sucks. That's tough. I was like, Hey, look, if you don't want to pay like, that's cool. Like I get it, but man, there were some people that were pissed. Um, so I took some heat waves for that and I stuck with it. I don't know. Honestly, I think it's, I mean, now it's amazing. I love it. Um, it's created this like community of people that I feel closer to. Um, I feel like I can interact like when, when it's a big podcast, and it kind of gets lost. Nobody actually communicates with you. It's it's ironic. The bigger you get, the there's still a lot. There gets more DMs, more questions. But at the end of the day, like I feel like the the community is in this tight niche, right? Uh, and where the Patreon had like I never planned on that, but that's what it created is like this like tight knit community where they communicate with each other more than I was even communicating. So like it had effects that I didn't really foresee. Now there's like pros and cons of everything, right? Like we're still doing it and it does really well. Um, and there's huge benefits to it, but is it perfect? Absolutely not, man. Like there's people that were 
getting on me about supporting uh, Patreon in the last few months with chaos and everything. I'm like, listen, like that's 50% of how the podcast works right now. So for us to just drop that, like I, I'm just going to, I'm going to drop the whole thing. Like if, if that's the case, yes. so like, so as, as mad as people are for me supporting Patreon based on their supporting values, like at the end of the day, no, I don't support that, but I like, it's the platform we're built on. And I just can't transition that fast. Honestly, like I would love to transition into like a lot of these people do like mug clubs and things like that. I think there's huge benefit in it. The workload for me, it's not what I intended to do. So it's always a balancing act, man. I don't know. I think the way you did it was pretty good. I am just from the outside looking in. uh, There's a lot of value that you've presented to your Patreon method. I mean, and you also integrated your backcountry fuel box as one of the options last I checked. And I think that's really cool. And uh, you're saying that you're taking one of your Patreons on an elk hunt this year. So again, you're just like, it's a tight niche community. And this tight knit community is, is growing, but it's not at a pace that you can't manage. And I mean, you're going freaking elk hunting with one of your Patreon people. (laughs) How, Which is I mean, really cool. That's Which super cool. special in my opinion. I mean, just yeah. like out of this world. But I do want to talk about Backcountry Fuel Box a little bit because I think I have all these ideas that come in and come out of my head and I have to write them down. And there's a couple. There's one that I can't remember. I wrote it down and I was actually going to talk to you about it. But if I do think of it, you'll get a text or phone call from me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but these ideas, as an entrepreneur, you have to like almost have a master list of ideas and write them down and come back to them and just see – you know, if, if they'll stick or whatever, but the fuel box to me is so genius. Like I just went to Costco yesterday, Cody, and I bought, I bought some groceries for our house, but I dropped $406 on food for elk hunting season. Now, obviously I'm gone longer than most people, but I'm nutrition's really important. And in early, early hunting days, I didn't really put a lot of thought into what I was eating. And then I met Ryan Lampers who took it to a level that I was like, wow, that's cool. I'm not going to go that far, but there's a lot to be said because I actually hunted with Ryan in 16, I think in Nevada. And I felt like he was outperforming me and I felt like I was more fit than him. And so what I mean by that is I felt like he was taking better care of his body. He was eating better real food and I felt like he was benefiting in the backcountry, and I was seeing it. Now, is that anecdotal? Maybe, but at the end of the day, it started making me think about what I ate. So like now I actually make spreadsheets and break down macronutrients and sugars and fats and try to like figure out my actual calorie allotment for the style of hunting I'm doing. And so I spent a lot of money yesterday and I'm actually filming today like what I'm going to be eating and I'm going to be doing food prep. But to say that I just buy a bag of mountain houses from Costco and then buy a bunch of bullshit food and backfill it with that. I don't do that anymore. And I think it makes a huge difference. Your idea for the backcountry fuel box is super cool because now you don't have to like really gamble with your money. You actually can sample all these different weird eclectic foods that I don't know how the hell you find them, but they're delivered to your doorstep and you can try all this stuff. You can stockpile it for a year and all your food's ready and you don't have to go to Costco and drop 400 or you can really know what you like and what your body performs. So how did you think of this? How did you get it to market? So uh, the whole idea came, I was, um, I did a lot of stuff with Green Belly way back in the day. Uh, we were kind of in the same entrepreneur group and, uh, and I loved like this concept. Right. And I was like, man, no one in hunting was doing this. And at the time 
I would, so I used to do military contracts and so I had a lot of MREs and so I was like eating MREs, like maybe, you know, I'll do a mountain house and like just click, like, but at the end of the day, I was like, okay, I'm done eating MREs, mountain house, cliff bars. Like I'm over it. Like that can, that can stop. Uh, and so I was eating green bellies and I remember thinking one time I, it was the first time I ever saw a subscription box and my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time had the subscription box for some fitness thing. And I was like, wait, they just send this to your door, like on repeat. I was like, man, someone should do this for green bellies. Cause I was eating green bellies instead of lunch because like I was in grind mode doing entrepreneur stuff and was busy. And, uh, and I was like, man, someone should send this. Cause I like, this was kind of at the time where there was a bunch of new companies coming out and it had nothing to do with the fact that I thought it was a great way to money. I was like, I just want to try all these new like snacks that came out. Like I think off grid was cut, like was out. Uh, there was a bunch of these companies. I was like, I want to try them, but I, I would like jump on off grid. Right. And I'd get on the website and I'm like, ah, you know, never end up ordering it. Cause it would be like 80 bucks or something. And I had to pay shipping. I was like, ah, that sucks. Uh, I really want to try this or whatever. Never finished the order. And needless to say, the idea for the box came up and I was milling around and think about it, you know, as we do like hunting season is the perfect brainstorm for a guy that goes hundred miles an hour. Like nothing really sets you in your place, like being in the woods by yourself, uh, for copious amounts of hours or months. And, you know, I was in the woods and I'm like, man, this, this is how this would work. Or like, this is great because the podcast could promote it. I'm like, ah, this is actually, and one of the things I look at in a company now is like, how well does this scale above the first thing? So, you know, I put a ton of effort into building an ammo company that never really scaled out of niche ammunition, niche ammunition. And so the next idea had to be, I say a million dollar idea, but it has to be a multi-million dollar idea because it's not worth doing unless it's big enough to do. Like I just, you know, having built one company, I was like, I'm not putting that much effort into something that's like making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Sorry, not going to happen. Uh, and so I was like, okay, as I thought about it more, I was like, man, this could really, really work. And then as I researched some numbers for some of these subscription boxes and I was like, man, some of these companies are doing real money, like some serious good dough. Uh, I was like, maybe there, maybe there's something here. And so like slowly it kind of evolved. And honestly, I had the same I or the same thought process as you just said. Like, how do you find all these niche companies? Like, how is there enough companies to support twelve months worth of new products? That's comical to me now because, like, I think we've worked with over one hundred and fifty brands at this point. Holy um, crap! I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, and like, and I there's a laundry list of more. Like, uh, we use like a, what we call a CRM, which is a customer. It's a it's a management system for like vendors or sales or whatever. And so we have an entire. It's not even a spreadsheet. It's like a management system software, high dollar software that we use to like categorize meals, snacks, uh, trail mixes, like all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and at the end of the day, there was like more companies than I really thought possible. So that was kind of like, okay, well, this is doable. This is doable. Like there's always like hiccups or, you know, hurdles along the way. But at the end of the day, I was like, well, this is at least a decent idea. It, it crossed the barriers of, of for me. And this is so, so important. If you're thinking about starting a company like set your barriers of entry, like, is it something you want to do? So many people look at an idea and like, oh, that's a great idea. But like, is it really something you could do for 10 years? Because at the end of the day, 
you know, entrepreneurs fail after five years. And it's not because the business, the idea was bad. It's because they lost interest or they lost passion. I 100% believe that like you get burnout, man, you deal with something long enough, you're going to get burnout. That's just what happens. And that's why businesses fail, you know, within five years is because of burnout. It's not because the idea was bad. I mean, maybe it is, but for the most part, I think it's burnout. So it crossed that crux of like, I'm actually interested in, in this thing. Like I'm, interested in finding new food. I'm interested in like, this is applicable to the hunting industry. It's big enough that it could be broader. Um, and like, these are like checkboxes, right? It's scalable. It's a system that I can build and work myself out of. Like those are all the, like the, the checkboxes that for me were important. So is it like, is it the coolest product I've ever seen in the world? No, probably not. But is it a system? Because that's not the most important thing to me. The most important thing to me is like, can it create September? And like, I know everyone that's listening is like, oh, I get it. Like, can I go hunting all of September and walk away from this thing? And it's done that. Yeah. And it's so cool that you've figured out, you know, the branding, the logo. How do I get a shitload of boxes that are empty with my branding on them? And and how can we assemble these boxes really fast? And then who's going to be in charge of reaching out to these companies. And I don't know if you've got it to the point where these companies pay you to be in their box, but I could see that being a potential because it's like they're getting exposure or if they're not, then they should surely cut you a really good deal because you're buying in large quantities. And, and the customer, the consumer, the most important part of the whole engine, they're stoked because they're getting, they're trying some stuff and they're going to eat a bar and go, that is absolutely disgusting. I'll never buy that. And on the other side, they're finding these things like like stowaway gourmet like you promoted them i tried it oh my gosh what in the heck i never knew about them and so you find these little gems and it makes a difference in your hunting when you have really good quality food and you're not just getting you know overdosed in sodium and nitrates and and a bunch of bullshit going into your body you're now putting the right fuel and you didn't brand it as a hunting company it's backcountry and that's huge one thing about the name I wanted to ask you, because my friends at Baku eBikes had to rebrand their the name of their eBike company that was Backcountry eBikes, and then Backcountry.com became big assholes and started like threatening them and bullying them. Did you get any? Did they reach out to you? No, like I, I was sweating that day. So for everyone who doesn't know, Backcountry.com uh, hired a PR agency that was like one of those New York agencies that thought they were like, and the way business is done, and I know this now, but like the way business is done in New York and LA is very, very different um, than the outdoor industry. Outdoor and hunting industry are very small. Like we respect each other. We we do buy right, if you will. Uh, they hired an agency that did not believe in that mantra and their CEO was led down a path of, we're gonna, you know, there's two ways to build the biggest business in town. One is to build the tallest or the biggest building, excuse me. The one is to build the biggest building. The other one is to level every other building. And uh, that particular PR agency thought it'd be a great idea to level every other building, um, which does not work in small industries like the hunting industry, like the outdoor space. And so what happened was they went after every single company that used the word backcountry. Well, as you can 
imagine the outdoor world, uh, the consumer base, was not very happy with that. And they kicked back and basically told backcountry to pound sand and they had to, to pull off of that one. I was just like this little fly on the wall hoping that no one saw me and <laughs> hoping we could skate through. And unfortunately, we did skate through. Uh, and, you know, there's <laughs> who knows if that'll ever happen. But like you, your buddy, you know, the e-bikes thing, like it, I, I don't know who got what or why but we skated through somehow yeah well that's exciting that the consumers the people out there got to like speak on your behalf because that's just like how do you trademark backcountry how do you trademark camping or hunting like such broad terms now elk shapes trademarked and i'd be pissed if someone used elk shape but i didn't trademark backcountry fitness or just but that's like you trying to trademark elk yeah. Like no one, no one can use the word elk. Like, come on. Uh, that's ridiculous. Um, so it is what it is. And like, I mean, dude, those are the fires that like pop up all the time. And like, you know, you were talking about like how to get started and all these things. And I, I think one thing I want to add to people, um, and I see this a lot, you know, everyone tries to create a perfect company right out the gate. Listen, like none of this is perfect. I like to focus on a minimum viable product. So there's times and there's ideas that maybe warrant patents because your moat, the only moat you have mm -hmm. is a patent. I actually talked to a buddy the other day. I'm like, man, you got to be dead set on a patent because I could rip that product off in 12 seconds uh, from China and have it here. And at the end of the day, like that's an important thing to come out the gate swinging. But for most companies, I think it's more important to start. You know, if you have an idea, you're out there, you're listening to this, like, man, I've had this idea and I want to run with it. Just start. Like, you're going to get, like, get a minimum viable product. Like, what is the minimum viable product? And so for me, it was like, I didn't need a fancy ass website. I didn't need the entire funnel. I, I think business plans are a joke. Uh, like, they're not even a, the starting point. They're, they're way to get investment. They're a made up thing that you go to a bank and the bank gives you money. But if you really want to see if an idea works, what is the minimum viable amount of money that you could spend to test that? So whether it's running, I mean, I don't really condone this because it's kind of frowned upon now, but like there was times where dudes would like create a product, run Facebook ads and just check click through rates to landing page to see if it worked. Mm -hmm. That's super smart, right? Like, yeah. oh, I'm going to like, hey, I got this new knife that pop comes out, right? I'm going to run Facebook ads and see what it costs me to run a person from Facebook to a landing page, because that's going to give me a rough idea. Like, okay, if I can convert 2% of those and here's my product uh, margin, uh, I, here's, here's the, here's the value. Here's, here's what it's going to cost me per customer. Am I making money or not making money? Say it cost me $25 to make the knife. I only make $5 per, per customer. Uh, but as I'm driving Facebook ads to this, it's costing me $10 or $20 per customer. Like, ah, that's getting expensive. I don't even have to make the knife, dude. Like I don't even have to do anything now. Granted, there's like, you should probably put disclaimers on it. You don't want to piss people off. And this is a very small industry and you need to be like, Hey, thinking about making the knife or like future orders, blah, 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 pending or whatever it may be. But there's ways to like test something, right? There's ways to like not invest your entire life savings, not go quit your job. If you got a cush job, trust me, you have 40 hours of extra time. Like I, I get this all the time. People are like, I'm thinking about quitting my job and starting this company. I'm like, that's a terrible idea. You know, like do it on the nights and weekends and evenings and see if it works. Like test an idea before you go all in. And that was me with Backcountry Fuel. Like, I didn't know if it was going to work. I, I just did it on the side. I mean, I'm still doing it on the side. But, uh, you know, test the idea first and see how well it's going to work.
That's the best thing you've said. Honestly, guys, listening, you don't have to quit your nine to five to start a side hustle. You, I did not jump all the way into elk shape until I was ready, but I built that side hustle up to where I had tested it and I knew that, you know, it was probably going to work. You never know for sure, but you have to take some risks, but it wasn't like, man, I got this idea for elk shape. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sell off my gym or quit, close the doors. No. Yeah. And uh, that's huge. And I, obviously, who knows what the next ideas you and I will have, but we'll probably do those on the side side and see how they go and test them. And, you know, the thing is, is like it, what it does, it's twofold. Like it creates it, it forces you to create something that's scalable. And when you go all in, it's easy to, you know, OK, I'm going to do everything myself or like, oh, if I if I how can I make the most money? You're optimizing for money at that point, not time. Whereas if you don't have to worry about money, then you're optimizing for time. And so the same could be said for backcountry fuel. For example, if I was if this was like my income, backcountry fuel was my income, I would be optimizing for money, not for time. But now I don't I don't have to take a dollar out of it. So now I can optimize for time. So every decision that runs through my matrices, if you will, and of like, okay, hey, should we do this or do this? Well, which is going to allow me September, which is going to allow me like September through November. Like that's, that's interesting. Not what's going to be more profitable. And I think that's important. You know, like if you have a side hustle and you can optimize for time, money will follow. It always does. Like, because at the end of the day, if it's scalable, it'll create money and, and you can repeat it. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the important thing. Maybe it makes a little less money per transaction, but it's scalable. All right. Well, let's transition the last little part of podcast. We got to talk about elk hunting. We, we did a podcast for your Patreon on solo elk hunting guys. Check that out. If you can, if you're not already one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. And I, I'm not just saying that cause I was on there, but there's just, Oh, there was some good stuff. And we hunt similar for sure. Uh, where are you going elk hunting this year? Uh, dude. So the Patreon hunt kicking off, uh, we're doing, going down into Mexico, hunting open country bulls in the Gila. It's going to be epic. Uh, I am stoked for that hunt. Cause it's like a mix of bugling, glassing, all that. Uh, so I not actually, I never hunted there, so I don't really know how it's going to go, but, uh, come back. I'm hunting open country, testing myself. Uh, it'll be solo, uh, open country elk hunting in the 900s of Montana, which is probably not supposed to be talked about. But at the end of the day, like, whatever. Uh, it's like so popular now. It's like who cares? Um, but then I do have a Wyoming tag. I'm I'm really hoping to squeeze out a short trip to Wyoming for Bugle Fest and try to call in the first bull that will get close enough to put an arrow in it. I mm, love it. Now that 900 series, yes, to me that's a very intimidating hunt. Uh, somebody like me, Mo Montana's not super far from me, but like to hunt that part of Montana, that's a serious commitment, and that's a, a kind of frustrating hunt that I don't know if I have the willpower to like spend that many days in the field watching bulls on private and hoping to try to figure out some little niche spot where I can intercept. Your chances of killing a bigger bull are way higher, but I mean, it's a, like, it's kind of a, a low odds deal. So my tip, my hat to you, I think you'll do well, but it's definitely, you have an advantage living where you live and can get out there, but it's still no guarantee. You're going to have to bust your butt. Um, but there's a lot of potential on that hunt. Dude, there is, but like at the end of the day, like, I mean, like you, I grew up screaming at bulls and I love doing that. So, uh, if I didn't like last year, I didn't have any other hunts except the, the my Montana hunt in Eastern Montana. 
And I actually did get into some treatment bulls, but for the most part, I was like hunting pretty open country and driving around a lot in the pickup. Uh, and I was like, man, you know, at the end of the day, I want an elk hunt every year that's just a scream fest. And so that's for me, Wyoming this year is like, oh, I'm going to go down and just call screaming bulls and see if I can get, you know, a 300 inch bull to come screaming in my face. Cause that's what I love to do. I will shoot a 300 inch bull all day, every day. Um, yeah, not picky on that. I mean, bull's got a good frame. And then I think a lot of people don't understand that a 300-inch bull's awesome, and they think that 300 is a 330 or something. But a hell of a lot more 270 to 300-inch bulls out there than people think. Absolutely, and they're awesome, man. They taste really good, too. Um, okay, so when it comes to the glassing game or whatever, you got some reps at it last year. You still like your traditional timber bugling bulls, and you've hunted all over. What do you think the biggest difference is between, like, say, you know, New Mexico versus eastern Montana versus, I'm assuming, timber country, not high desert Wyoming? Like, compare and contrast those just kind of like a general overview. Uh, dude, um, the one thing, like, since I moved to Montana, I've really focused on hunting a new way and being able to glass, being able to follow herds. Like, that interests me. A lot of the greats, that's what they do. And so it's like, cool. I have always wanted to put more tools in the tool chest than than be a master at one or be a master at one area. So I love hunting new areas, love going new places, and I love figuring out new ways. And, you know, the times I've hunted in New Mexico before this have all been, you know, my old school tactics of screaming at elk and trying to find them, uh, which works. I, I don't know about the Gila. I've heard both. I've heard that, like, uh, it's tough to call bulls down there because it's open. I've heard that it's, you know, you can scream bulls in if you want. I just like being able to have both, you know, the one thing people will come to Montana and they tend to focus on areas. And this is true, whether you're in Eastern Montana or Western Montana, they tend to focus on areas where they can see, like naturally you want to be able to see things. And the more you can see, the less your bugle is going to be effective. And so people come to Montana and they hunt, Say, let's say Southwest Montana, pretty broken, open, still quite a bit of open country. Bulls will still act, you know, very leery of calls. A lot of them get called out a lot. And so when I came here, it was like, everyone's like, oh, put your bugle away. And I had plenty of success bugling an elk. I have no problem. Um, I don't think most Montanans can call elk very well. So there's a benefit to like hunting the thick country. And there's dudes like, like come to Montana and they target the thicker country because they know the locals won't hunt it. Uh, so there's something to be said for both trains of thought. But I think as a rule of thumb, the more open the country gets, the less, you know, I tend to bugle. Um, and that's just coming from like my trying to target bigger and bigger bulls. Um, and less so than do I think it's impossible to call big bulls. I think you can call in any bull on the right day. Uh, having said that, I do think it's probably more effective if you're chasing targeting that top level bull to choose areas that are going to be, you know, be able to follow the herd, be able to glass her, be able to see what you were looking at. Um, you know, what happened to me last year is, you know, go into a thicker area, very small, thick area, but you're making last minute decisions and which is fine. I think, you know, we go back to like, Hey, a 300 inch bull comes in. It's really hard not to shoot him. Uh, and so when you put yourself, when you put yourself in a situation to make last minute decisions, you're almost always going to pull the trigger because let's, let's admit it. Like shooting elk is fun. Fact. Now on that open country side of stuff. That, that to me that would be a struggle to figure out when to strike like like the 
patience is not, I, I probably err on the side of less patience and that's just my personality, but like patience probably pays off more in that open country. So when does a guy like Rich, Cody Rich like decide to leave your glassing master vantage and get in tight with the herd? And when you get in tight with the herd, are you like, okay, this bull is hitting that wallow every day at two o'clock. He's leaving his cows or this bull every day gets up and scent checks his cows or goes and rakes, I'm going to just slip into that magical distance where I feel like I got to get lucky, but the wind's got to be right. Like there's a lot there, but like, let's focus on that tactic. Cause I think that's one that I'm going to try more than ever this year. So here's a, here's a stu- or a, a story to kind of answer that question. A couple years ago, uh, I was in an area, didn't work out, came out, uh, ended up finding a bull and this bull, I went to, into a new area and I'd, I'd kind of seen a herd of elk from a long ways away, move in, was kind of looking for them. Uh, and bull pops out like 60 yards. Actually, t- take that back. Pops out of like 150 yards. I make a move. I had that bull at like 60 and didn't get a shot. And, uh, so I spent the next week or so looking at this bull. I turned this bull up again and he's in kind of a half burn area and I'm glassing. I'm, I don't know, a couple hundred yards away, maybe three, four hundred yards away. And this bull all day screaming, going nuts, going after cows, going after satellites all day. And I'm uh, texting one of my buddies who's really good at the open country stuff. And I'm texting him pictures and like, dude, I, you know, should I go? Should I not go? And, and the problem was is that every time I started to go, the wind would switch. And I'd be like, ah, I was trying to be more patient, right? And I'm like, ah, I just got to be patient. I'll get a shot. You know, I was trying to be the more patient person because I'm not historically very patient with those things. I'm usually pretty aggressive. And most guys that call a lot are usually more aggressive than patient. And so finally I'm like, I got to go. I got to go. So I move in and this is like getting late afternoon. But I'm like, okay, if I go this way, the wind once evening winds sets up, it should be pretty stable. But the, the downside is that they're going to feed the other way. That's okay because worst case scenario, I don't blow them out. Uh, I don't get a shot, but I, I live to fight another day. So I do that. I get to 115 yards from like a five point and the bulls, you know, another 50 yards down the hill, just screaming his face off. Never get a shot. Can't get any closer. Oh, get up, feed down the hill. The part I didn't really realize was that was Friday. I hadn't really thought about what day it was, what day it wasn't. Uh-oh. So the next the next day, I'm like, these bulls are gonna be right here. They're gonna like the elk's gonna come right back up the same spot, and I'm gonna be ready. And I'm sitting up there, and I'm like a perfect spot, and I hear them bugling all the way up to me. They're coming up to the same spot, and I'm like, this is gonna be money. This is perfect. It was like foggy, it's golden, and they all of a sudden shut up. And I'm like, what, what happened? And so I start going down and I see like the satellites, but I don't hear anything. I'm like, that's weird. And sure enough, there's two hunters kind of working up and they had bumped them long on to private. And, uh, I glassed the elk up like a mile away and I was like, God, I should have went yesterday. Should have been more aggressive, but you know, hindsight's 2020. And uh, I don't know. I don't have the answer to this. I tend to lean more like save it for another day. And that's one thing I've learned from my buddies is like, you can't really base anything off the hunting pressure and you shouldn't make your decision on that. But you also don't want to be the guy that bumps it. So I tend to, when it comes to this game where you have very small area to play, don't mess it up because once they go on private, it's done. Right. And so I tend to be more reserved. Having said that, if I could go back, it was like, 
you know, it was Friday. I should have known that Saturday in Montana, Saturdays in Montana means everybody's hunting. Uh, and that would have an effect. So my two cents is like, be cognizant of the day. I tend to lean to being patient, but at the end of the day, sometimes you have to force it. There it is. Okay. Cody, last question. There's, uh, in my opinion, there's two types of beer that are amazing. They're both cold. One is after you've cut firewood all day, split it, and it's in the back of the truck. That's the best beer. And then the other one is you just hauled out the last load of antlers and cape or whatever. You made it to the truck. Everything's in the back of your truck. You reach into that cooler. What's your go-to beer for 2020 elk season? Oh, that's a good question, man. Um we just had this beer. Someone brought it out of the house. And, uh, yeah, you're right. Like you pack out an elk and I actually carry this like a little trigger with me. Cause every once in a while I come back to the truck and there's nothing better than having like some frozen patty burgers and like having a big fat juicy burger and a beer. Mm. Uh, and and going back to this like nutrition thing, maybe this is why I'm not as great a hunter as you, but, uh, like we had this beer, it's called bluff charge. Um, I don't know who makes it, but it's freaking delicious. Uh, so that's the one that's like go to on the, on top of my, or tip of my tongue right now. Uh, so, but yeah, I last pack out, I'm dreaming about that Cisco burger and a beer when I get back to the truck. Mm, that's awesome. So guys check out Cody. He's uh the rich outdoors.net, uh, backcountry Um, he's on socials. What else did I miss? Yeah, I guess that's that's it. Henny, the Rich Outdoors, Backcountry Fuel Box, wherever you guys want to check it out. If you guys are interested, we put out a ton of content on Patreon. Uh, we do elk episodes and deer episodes every single week. Uh, we're doing some Q&As coming up. So if you guys want to ask questions like, hey, we're going to put on some Q&As before season. Uh, yeah, appreciate Let me jump on. Dude, love talking business with you. You're a sharp cat and uh, appreciate your time. Guys, remember – Separation is in the preparation, and we will catch you on the next one. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that. That was a little bit different podcast, a little different flavor. I didn't want to just bring Cody on and talk nothing about elk hunting. I mean, I'm really interested to learn more about his business, how he works for himself, and then all the stuff that you don't think about, all the hard work he has to put in in August just so he can break out and do a little bit of elk hunting. I don't know how that guy does it all from getting all the cool, obscure foods for the Backcountry Fuel Box to lining up all the guests for all the different podcasts that he offers and working with his community and still being an awesome father and husband. That guy's legit. Got nothing but respect for him. We'll have him on again soon. Hopefully right now you're getting ready or listening to this on your way to elk camp. Give her hell. This is all you got. And then you got to wait 11 months, my friends. So have no regrets. Wait for the perfect shot opportunity. Have faith. Stay strong. Never give up. And we'll catch you on the next one.